Well, hello, church. It is so good to see you. Welcome to another wonderful online worship service. Let's get ready to go. But before you do, just want to give you the heads up that we're going to have communion here in a little bit. So if you want to pause me right now, you can go ahead and get some of your favorite elements uh, to take communion with and then come on back. Now that you're back, we are going to get into a sweet time of worship. Take it away, risers.
Hey church, well for communion today, uh, I had found a passage that I thought was fitting as we've been going through the book of Exodus, and uh, it's Jesus' own words in the book of John. So he had just fed the 5,000, he had walked on water across the lake, and when he had got to the other side the next day, the crowd found him, and he said these words to him, to the crowd in John chapter six. He says this, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as we've been studying in the book of Exodus, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. So communion is first and foremost, first and foremost, just us remembering what Jesus did. Um, obviously, a lot of times it can be quite somber as we reflect on Jesus's death, but it also is a celebration. It's a celebration because of what we read here in this passage. Whoever eats of this bread, and no, not referring to this physical bread that we're gonna eat, uh, communion doesn't in itself save us. However, this bread, whoever eats of Jesus's living bread, whoever trusts Jesus for salvation lives forever. So as we eat and we remember today, let's celebrate. Let's eat together. Let's drink and remember Jesus. Dear Lord, um, Lord, thank you that you sent Jesus. Thank you that Jesus is our living bread, um, that he paid the price. Um, thank you for the sacrifice that he made. Thank you that today we can celebrate um, because of the um, selfless, and amazing act that Jesus did for us over 2,000 years ago. Lord, we love you. We remember you. Uh, we pray all this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Well, thank you, worship team, for leading us, and thank you so much for joining us online. Chris here, and I have just a couple of things I'd like to bring to your attention. Uh, first off, uh, we are so thankful that uh, you have clicked on our video and, and that you're doing church with us, and uh, we love uh, to be able to do church with you. Uh, so we just hope and pray that it is a blessing for you throughout the week. Uh, well, as you know, we as a staff, we love praying for you, and uh, we would just encourage you to text your uh, confidential prayer request, your prayer requests to 97,000. Uh, you can do it at any time and uh, we would get them. We will get them and we'll love uh, to be able to pray for you. Uh, well, there is a lot going on at Agora Bible Fellowship. A lot's happening. Uh, tons of different ministries and weekly happenings. And if you are interested in knowing some more information or, or if you would like to have more information, our website is like the best place to go. Uh, you can visit us anytime at agorabible.org. And if you're on the website, you'll notice that there is a Give tab and uh, you can make a donation there. Uh, as you know, uh, our ministries are, um, are here because of your financial generous support, and we would be so grateful if you would uh, prayerfully consider making a donation. Well, before we get into God's Word, uh, I'm going to pray for us. 
Well, Father, we are so grateful um, for the fact that we uh, get to send these videos out, that we get to have church with people uh, that are in different cities, different states, and throughout our country and many countries. Lord, we thank you uh, that you're a God of faithfulness and that you listen and hear us, Lord. Uh, We pray for the next few minutes as we open up your word, Lord, that you speak to us, that we hear you. And uh, make it clear to us what you want us to, to get out of these next few minutes. Or we love you so much. We thank you for your grace and your mercy and your unending love. We love you so, so much. It's your name we pray. Amen. Well, hello again, church. Welcome back. My name is Josh. I'm one of the pastors here. First off, I just wanted to say happy Olympics. So I'm currently filming on Thursday. And the first primetime recording of the Olympics is airing right now. I'm excited to be hanging out with you, but I am equally as excited to get home and watch me some Winter Olympics. I cannot wait. So I have entitled my message today, Sympathizing Priest, Expanded Edition. If you were around a few weeks ago, if you tuned in a few weeks ago, I was preaching through the book of Hebrews chapter 2. Uh, verses 10 through 18, and in that message, we saw that Jesus is four things. I'm sure you don't remember them. Uh, However, I am going to give you them right now. He's our suffering founder. He's our unashamed brother. He's our partaking deliverer, and he is our sympathizing priest. Back a few weeks ago when I was preaching, I said that I could easily do a full message on any of those four sections, just stand alone, And I have good news or bad news for you today. If you kind of enjoyed to very much enjoyed anywhere in there, the last message, I have good news for you. If you did not enjoy, (laughs) then I have bad news for you. Because you are getting one of those four messages. Today, in our text, the author really dives into and expands on the idea that Jesus is our sympathizing priest. And so we're going to get into that a little bit more today. So it's not a unique thing to this series going through the book of Hebrews uh, because it happens multiple times where the author touches on a subject and then later down the road, he goes back to it, he revisits it, and he expands upon it. We're actually going to see it again today. So just a little warning, that's going to happen again here today. So I have a theory And I'm excited slash nervous to share this theory with you today. Lindsay and I were talking about it earlier this week, so I've confirmed my theory within my own household. However, that's only two people, so I'm interested to see how you guys respond here to my theory today. My theory is this. If you live in a place with regular snowfall or regular weather of any kind, then it is the cultural norm to remove your shoes when you enter someone else's home. However, if you live in a place that does not experience regular weather or snow, any of that, then it is the cultural norm to leave your shoes on when you visit somebody else's house. For instance, I grew up in the Chicagoland area. We received precipitation in the form of snow during the winter. And so growing up, whenever I would go over to somebody else's house, regardless of what season it was, I would go in and I would immediately take off my shoes and the entire time I was over there, I would have my shoes off. It was viewed as polite. It was viewed as considerate so that I would keep their house clean. That's just how we did things. Then I moved out to LA and 
I was shocked and appalled. Uh, I just learned that there's a different way of thinking about it out here in this context and culture where there's not weather regularly. When you go to somebody's home out here, you generally speaking, leave your shoes on. It's viewed as polite and considerate because you don't want me coming to your house just making myself all at home. You don't want me taking off my shoes and get my nasty, stanky, sweaty feet all over the floor where you live, right? So, uh, the interesting part about it is that both of these things are completely opposite, yet depending on the context, both can be correct. So here's the moment of truth. I'm not going to be able to get a response from you because you are watching this in the future, but raise your hand if when you go to somebody else's house, you take your shoes off. No? Okay. Well, what, where do you live? That's, I guess, the real question. Am I right is what I want to know. Is my theory correct? You can email me and let me know. Joshuaagorebible.org. That'd be great. Uh, I'm, I know I'm right, so that's okay. So here's the question. What happens when our context changes? What happens when a group of LA people, aka your wife and her Southern California uh, family, go up to Big Bear in the snow? What happens? Well, when I go with my wife's family up to Big Bear in the snow, I kind of snap right into it. I get in the house, all the snow on the ground, I take my shoes off, throw on my nice wool socks, good to go. However, I will say that I do know that it's only a matter of time. Sometime on that first night, I will step those beautifully warm, cozy, comfortable wool socks into a puddle because somebody has worn their shoes into the house. Now, I'm not coming down on them. Honestly, it has so much to do with just a cultural, contextual thing. The idea of keeping your shoes on is just so ingrained in our context that once you get out of it, it takes some like adjustment. It takes a huge kind of like uh, mental shift in order to kind of correct and turn the corner. Josh, why are you saying all this? What's the whole point? Well, the point is this. Uh, there's a, a mental, a mentality shift, an adjustment that's necessary when we enter the context of Scripture. Specifically, when we enter in and we read a book like the book of Hebrews, when we read a passage like the passage that we're going to read today talking about our need for a high priest— we need to enter into that context uh, and understand what's going on there. For most people today, the idea of needing a high priest is so incredibly foreign, it's kind of crazy. Even in the Christian church, most of what has been taught, what you've been hearing is, man, we do not need another person to go and mediate between us and God right? That's what you hear growing up in the church. You can go directly to God himself. You don't need another man in between you and him, right? That's what you hear. And that's certainly true. What if I told you that the original Jewish readers of Hebrews had a leg up on us in this regard that they automatically understood their desperate need of a high priest? What if I told you that you that we all desperately needed and still need a high priest. The Lord specifically executed his ultimate plan for humanity in a first century context. And so we, the modern reader, need to metaphorically take our shoes off so that we can hear what God wants us to hear as we read through this text, even if it feels opposite. So, 
Today, we are kicking off a larger section in the book of Hebrews. It spans the next few chapters, and it contends that Jesus perfectly filled the role of high priest. Some questions that you might be asking as we go through our scripture today, and some questions that we're going to answer are, one, do I actually need a high priest, number one? And number two, does Jesus meet the qualifications to be a high priest? Let me pray. And we are going to get into God's word together. Let's pray. Dear Father, um, Lord, just thank you. Um, Thank you for your word. Thank you for just sweet layers, God, of just getting a little bit here and then diving in more and just how, um, how really just rich and amazing it is when we get into it together. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would just have your way right now, that you would say what you want to say. Lord, I pray that you'd get me out of the way. Um, Lord, we just give this time to you and ask you to show up and move and stir in our hearts as we uh, do this together. We love you so much, and we pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. If you would, turn with me to Hebrews chapter 4. It really would be beneficial if you could get in there. So if that's on your phone, an iPad, your Bible, whatever it is, uh, go ahead and turn over to Hebrews chapter 4. So last week, Pastor Scott kind of concluded a larger section that was really kind of a warning section. Uh, Up until now, the author has been imploring his Jewish audience that had heard the gospel but hasn't yet responded. He's saying, Jesus is superior to the angels. He's superior to prophets. He's superior to Moses. Please say yes to Jesus in order to enter his rest and his salvation. Fortunately, salvation does way more than just keep us on the good side of judgment. Not only does it save us from spiritual death, but it gives us spiritual life. Let's dive deeper into Jesus as our sympathizing priest. So part one, chapter four of Hebrews, starting in verse 14. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Okay, so he starts here and he talks about Jesus, our great high priest. He passed through the heavens. So I want you to hold on to this imagery right here uh, because we're gonna understand a little bit more as we dive into the next section of what he's talking about. But for now, I just want you to notice the contrast that a human high priest would pass through the temple and here we're seeing that Jesus passed through the heavens. So a few weeks ago, I focused on the fact that as a sympathizing priest, Jesus is able to help us in temptation. Do you remember this? How he sprints to our side when we cry out. And that's certainly true, but man, there is more. So, man, when we go through uh, a season of pain, we want to talk with someone who gets it. We want to talk with someone who gets it. So just here in the last few weeks, uh, I had a situation where I had a friend that came to me and just needed to talk 
and tell me about what was going on. He was having a, 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 rough, a rough go. Uh, he had a really, really close family member that he loved very dearly that was having some very serious health issues. And that day, it looked like he probably just had a few hours. He wasn't going to make it through the day. And my friend came to me just in an absolute mess. And I was thinking about it. Man, why did he come to me? Um, sure, we have a relationship. We have a friendship. Um, but he could have gone to any of his other friends. He, I know that he has friends that are closer than I am. Uh, I'm convinced that the reason he came to me is because he knew I got it. He knew that I got it. I had been there before. I'd been exactly where he, had been, where he was, where he was terrified, where he was begging God for a miracle and just kind of living in that excruciating waiting period that he was in. Uh, man, we just spent some time and just talking about life, talking about his family member, talking about JJ. He asked me about what it was like being in the hospital with JJ and kind of being in that in-between where you're just like on your face, just praying and begging uh, for God uh, to show up, not knowing if he's actually gonna answer. And man, we just talked, I told stories, we cried together. Um, it was such a sweet, sweet time together. In tough times, we desperately want someone who can sympathize. Um, such an incredible element of Jesus' humanity is that he can sympathize with us, that he understands temptation. He understands how hard it is sometimes on this planet, how hard it is to be a human being. Honestly, he understands temptation even more than we do. Uh, he experienced depths of temptation that we will never, ever know. Have you ever had a really like nasty injury? Can you think of one? I have had a few. Uh, it's actually, I don't think it's a good thing when you have to kind of like go through like, oh, I could talk about that story or that injury or that injury. I've had a few. Um, so the point that I'd like to make here is that our bodies can only take a certain amount of pain. We can only take so much. Then at a certain point, at a certain threshold, our body just stops. So a few years ago, uh, before COVID and before COVID shut down all the weddings that people used to have, I was over at Brookview Ranch and I was helping moving some chairs for a wedding. And I was up on this ledge and I jumped down from the ledge onto some uneven ground. I was wearing some uh, low top shoes and my ankle just turned uh, like nasty, like really good pop. I have... Uh, rolled a bunch, my ankle a bunch of times over the years because of basketball, and this was hands down the worst. I would remember just being in so much pain. I was sitting down on the ground, and all of a sudden, I don't remember anything. I literally passed out from the pain, and when I came to, I was kind of hunched over, leaning over myself. I was sweating. Uh, Lindsay was worried, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. It was my ankle was so fat. Like still, years later, like I can still feel it. You know, like you're just like, oh, that was from that. It was absolutely horrible. But at a certain point. My body just stopped. And a similar thing happens with temptation. At a, certain part, at a certain point, we just stop. When temptation becomes too strong, when it gets overwhelming, we just cave and give in. We just give in to temptation, which I would say is why we desperately need to cry out to Jesus for help in times of temptation, like we talked about last time I was preaching. We absolutely need to do that. 
But Jesus, when he was here on this earth, he never caved in. He never caved in. And because of that, he experienced temptation to the fullest. He endured the maximum amount of temptation possible. He gets it. He understands. He sympathizes. And the author is saying that that should give us incredible confidence to approach the Lord on his throne of grace. Throne of grace. If you're familiar with the Esther story, what would you say it's like to approach the king's throne back in those days? Would you use words like confidence or grace? Absolutely not, right? Uh, back then, if you're not familiar, back then if you were to approach the king's throne, if he did not raise his scepter in acceptance of you, you literally would die. The throne was not generally a place of grace, but our king is absolutely a king of grace. Jesus is a king of grace and he sympathizes with us. And therefore, the text says, if you continue reading on, we're encouraged to draw near, to receive mercy and grace, to help in temptation. That's there in verse 16. So this word for help, uh, you should be familiar with. If you remember the last time we were talking together, we came across a different tense of this word. Uh, we came across the verb back last time we were together in chapter two, and it had this nuance of running to the aid of someone who cries out for help. Remember, I used the illustration of a parent with their child. Well, here, it's a different form of the Greek word for help. Here, it's a technical nautical term, like in ships, nautical term. True story. The only other place that we see this in all of scripture, this word, is in Acts chapter 27. So the story that's what's going on back then in Acts 27 is Paul, the apostle Paul, is on a ship and he's sailing for Rome. If you're familiar with the story, uh, there's a giant storm that comes up. Eventually, it causes the ship to shipwreck onto land. But before that, while they're in the middle of the storm, the sailors help the boat. The same word that we're looking at here. The sailors help the boat. And what do they do to help the boat? What they do is they throw rope around the entirety of the boat, like rope after rope after rope. And what they do is they take the rope and they literally tie the boat together, binding the boat together. As we think about it, as that relates to our text today and what we're talking about now, how amazing of a picture is that? When we cry out to Jesus in temptation, when things seem like they're absolutely falling apart, when we cry out to him, not only does he come sprinting to our side, but then he wraps us up and holds us together Regardless of what you're going through, the loss of a loved one, life just feels like it is absolutely falling apart. You're experiencing temptation that is so, so tough. When we cry out to him, he helps. He runs to us and he wraps us up and holds us together. How amazing is our God. Part two, high priest. As I mentioned uh, earlier, this is the beginning of a larger section. We're starting here in, verse five, in chapter 5. Uh, we're starting a conversation about the high priest. So we're going to talk about today 
the role and qualifications, uh, what the qualifications are to become a high priest. And then the second thing is we're going to look at how Jesus perfectly meets all of those qualifications. So, role and qualifications, chapter 5, verse 1. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So a few weeks ago, I mentioned that one role of a priest was to make sacrifices on behalf of the people. And the purpose of those sacrifices was to serve as propitiation for sin. We said that propitiation was just a big word that generally means payment. We said there's a reason why we use the word propitiation instead. And there's a good reason. But if you're interested, you just have to go back and check that out because we're not getting into that right now. So there were many priests and they were all underneath the authority of the high priest. So now here, as we get into this conversation, we are talking specifically about the high priest. The high priest was like the head pastor slash butcher of the, it's a weird combination. I know, I don't fully get it, but that's what it is. He's like the head pastor of the entire nation. He made sure that the covenant was enforced, that the temple duties were fulfilled, including the sacrifices. He made sure that the people directed their hearts towards God. And the high priest's primary role, his primary role was to serve as a representative and a mediator between God and the people. We see that right there in verse one. The main way that he did this, that he served as a mediator between God and the people is that he and only he could offer the highest sacrifice. The highest sacrifice was made once a year in the Holy of Holies, on the Day of Atonement, or Yom Kippur. The highest sacrifice was for all sins of all the people for the entire year, and it was taken incredibly, incredibly seriously. Not only was it a matter of life and death for the high priest, but how this sacrifice went had massive implications for uh, the entire nation as well. If everything went perfectly. If everything went perfectly, the high priest, after making a sacrifice for himself, we see that he needed to do that there in verse 3, he would pass through three areas of the temple. First, he would pass through the door of the outer court. Then, he would pass through a door into the holy place. And finally, he would pass through a veil into the holy of holies. The Holy of Holies was the innermost and most sacred place in the temple. It was the literal place of God's presence on earth. Once he was there, the high priest would quickly sprinkle the blood sacrifice on the mercy seat. And then immediately he would leave not to return for an entire year. When he came out, the people would sigh in relief because God had accepted their sacrifice for another year. Josh, it's a little intense. Like, 
matter of life and death, that's a little dramatic, isn't it? Well, let me, let me explain a little bit of why it is not. So back then, God's holiness was taken very, very seriously. Uh, and rightfully so. Honestly, as I was thinking about it today, I thought, man, what a better place this would be if we took God's holiness more seriously. I'm just saying, I'm just saying. Uh, so back then, his holiness taken very seriously. Up until that point, there was a massive separation between God and man. Uh, this separation was set up by God intentionally. Let me say that again. This separation between God and man was set up by God intentionally. It was just a temporary thing. And what he was doing is he was setting up his ultimate plan for humanity. He was kind of just like, bringing in the drama, just setting the table for what he was going to do next. And what he was going to do next is deeper communion than anyone had ever experienced before. So the people needed to take God's holiness, his set apartness, if you would, that's what holiness is, set apartness. They needed to take this temporary separation very seriously because God took it very seriously. Again, he's just setting up his plan. So here in the Holy of Holies, the place of God's literal presence on earth, it was not to be entered under any circumstances. There was one exception. That's it. That one exception was the high priest once a year on the day of atonement and after he had followed the very specific set of rules that the Lord laid out for him to be there. If the high priest did not follow that set of rules flawlessly, he would literally die upon entering into the Holy of Holies, as would anyone else that entered under any circumstances. So no, it's not dramatic. It was literally life and death every single year until the Lord fulfilled his plan, which we're getting there. And no, we are not exempt. We are not the exception. We all needed a high priest to mediate between us and a holy God that we are not worthy of, that is separate from us. That is how he set it up. So that's the role. Now on to the qualifications. So you couldn't just go and just say, I, I think I, I want to be a priest now. I, you know what? I want to be a high priest. Uh, you could not. There were actually qualifications for the role. Uh, here we see in this text, we see three qualifications in order to become high priest. One, had to be human. Two, had to be sympathetic. And three, the big one, had to be called and appointed by God. We're just going to look very briefly at these three. High priest had to be human. Look there in verse one. For every high priest chosen from among men. Uh, it seems like a pretty obvious qualification for a human position, right? And it is. Uh, so yes, it is true that angels could not be high priest. Uh, what I think this really helps uh, give us a little bit more of a framework for is our question from last time. If you remember, we talked about why did Jesus become a man? Why did he become human? Why not just save us as God, right? Remember we talked about that. Well, part of the answer is the high priest had to be human and Jesus had to be high priest. So kind of just answers uh, a little bit more of that question for us. Number one, had to be human. Number two, had to be sympathetic. Look there in verse two. It says, he can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset 
with weakness. The high priest had to be sympathetic. That's the main idea. He had to sympathize with the people. Now, if you see there, uh, deal gently, there's actually a lot wrapped up in the Greek word that's translated deal gently. And it really just kind of carries this tone of understanding with balance. Understanding with balance. And I'll explain what I mean by that. Someone who is too sympathetic uh, can either be too soft and kind of let things slide or if they're too sympathetic, it can look like, man, just getting so sucked in to the emotion, getting so swept in and overwhelmed with emotion because you're feeling just so, so much that it just takes over and affects every part of you. Do you know people like this? I'm, I'm sure you do. Uh, not helpful. Not helpful as a high priest. On the other hand, someone that's not sympathetic enough would either be indifferent, like, don't care, don't see it, whatever, or become bitter and harsh. Neither of those are good either. Um, one of the best parenting tips I ever heard, and I actually don't even remember where I heard this parenting tip, but one of the best tips I ever heard is that it's a parent's job to help regulate the emotions of their kid. You set the emotions of their, your kids. You're not swayed by the emotions of your kid. You provide balance in their lives. Uh, Holly, sweet little Holly, is 10 months old, and I would not say that she is emotionally balanced. That's not how I would describe uh, my 10-month-old, probably no 10-month-old, but like she's a generally super happy baby, but then all of a sudden, for whatever reason, could be the smallest thing, the girl like freaks out. It's like, what are you doing, you crazy little kind of human. No, she's amazing. I love her so much. Um, so as a parent, if I am too sympathetic, I can become emotionally just overwhelmed, right? Like as her emotions swell, my emotions can swell and it can kind of turn into this vortex of emotion, a glass case of emotion, if you will. Um, but it can easily turn into that. And later in life could absolutely turn into just us letting too much slide. If we're too sympathetic, just letting way too much slide. Uh, and not, that is not good for parent nor child. On the other hand, if I'm not sympathetic enough, that could look like me ignoring her. And obviously that's not going to be good for the relationship. That's not good for her. Or on the other hand, if I'm not sympathetic enough, I can get angry. I can react out of anger. And that creates an anger vortex. And then we're just swirling and creating more emotion and anger out of that. Also not good. The ideal in parenting, so I'm told, I'm not the expert. I'm not even trying to pretend to be the expert. I've got a 10-month-old. Uh, the ideal is a balanced amount of sympathy. If I can understand her, if I can understand that she's 10 months old, that she can't communicate, that she's probably hungry or tired or gassy or wants to go and touch that thing or put that in her mouth, then I can kind of like understand a little bit and it allows me to deal gently with her instead of reacting out of frustration or anger. It's a kind of a picture of similarly, the high priest had to uh, 
had to sympathize, but in a balanced way, upholding, enforcing the rules while dealing gently with the people. That was the role of the high priest. That was a qualification. Qualification one, human. Two, sympathetic. And three, called and appointed by God. Look there at verse one. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God. And then look down to verse four. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God. Uh, pretty straightforward, right? I don't think I, there's much explaining. Like that kind of just text, like that speaks for itself. Uh, but there is one Old Testament story that I think is worth remembering here alongside of this. It's from Numbers chapter 16. You don't have to turn there. I'm just going to tell you a little bit about it. So what happened back then is there were three guys, and they gathered up 250 other men, and they basically had this revolt or rebellion against Moses and Aaron. And the whole deal is they basically came and they challenged their authority as priests. They were contending that anyone could be a priest, that it wasn't a qualification thing, that this set of qualifications that God had set up, not that big of a deal. But the Lord thought otherwise because he set it up that way. Uh, and so what happened was that the ground literally opened up and swallowed up all three of these guys and their entire families. So yes, the Lord took this seriously and needless to say the priesthood and specifically the high priesthood was taken very, very seriously. There's another thing that these qualifications do and I think they give us a little piece of the puzzle of why the religious leaders back in Jesus' day hated him so, so much. So the Jews of Jesus' time absolutely would be familiar with the qualifications, absolutely would be familiar um, with this story of Korah's rebellion that we see in Numbers chapter 16. Uh, they held the priesthood in high regard. So when Jesus was walking around and telling people that their sins were forgiven, the scribes and the Pharisees were thinking, that is not okay. That is absolutely not okay. Part of the offense is that he was acting like a priest. And he had no right to be acting like a priest because he was not qualified. Or so they thought. Our next section is all about how Jesus meets all the qualifications for high priest. Let's go on. Jesus, perfectly qualified. Verse 5. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. 
So first of all, in this section, the very first thing I wanted to do is I wanted to disappoint you. So that's what I'm going to start with at the beginning of this section. Most of you, as we were reading through, uh, if you were following along with me, still with me? Good. Okay. If you were following along, probably the biggest thing that stood out is this Melchizedek stuff, right? Like, Josh, I'm kind of getting on board with the high priest thing, figuring it out. I'm in the context with you. However, who is this Melchizedek and what in the world does it mean to be a high priest after the order of Melchizedek? I don't get it. So my disappointment is I'm going to let you know that I'm not going to talk about that at all today. Uh, probably should touch on it a little bit, but I'm not. We're waiting for that for chapter 7. So we'll talk about that in a couple weeks. Just like, if you want, just pause here. We'll listen in a couple weeks and then you can come back. Well, do whatever. I don't care. So what we will be talking about in this section is this. Is one, how Jesus is perfectly qualified to be high priest. How he meets each of the qualifications. So briefly, we're going to go through these yet again. Number one, human. Look at verse seven. In the days of his flesh. No one really has an issue with the fact that Jesus was human. Uh, Really, the, the questions and the pushback surrounds, well, why did he become human? Or people have an issue with his deity, with his divinity. Nobody really has any issue with him being human. Uh, not really hang up. So I'm just going to say, check. Yeah, Jesus was human. Let's move on to number two. Sympathetic. Jesus being sympathetic. So if you were to read the rest of verse seven, you'd see kind of the section that's talking about that. And I just want to say that Jesus was incredibly, incredibly sympathetic. When we're in pain, we just want to talk to someone who gets it. Uh, I have a friend actually that just came to me um, just like two weeks ago. And he's having a rough time. And uh, came to my office and he was just letting me know that he's got a family member that's, um, yeah, maybe just has hours to live. And uh, we were just talking and uh, I was thinking, why did he come to me? And uh, I'm just kidding, right? This was my earlier section. Were you listening earlier? I don't know. So I could just copy and paste my section from before. See what I did there? All right. So uh, one thing that I did want to add to this section, I I thought that was funny. I don't know if anybody else thought that was funny, but I did. So one thing that I did want to add to it as we were discussing balanced sympathy and man, just how amazing Jesus is with balanced sympathy, how perfectly just and perfectly loving he is at the same time. And he treats us in a perfectly balanced and sympathetic way. Incredible. Absolutely incredible. So clearly Jesus met this criterion as well. He was sympathetic. And number three, the third way that Jesus meets the qualifications for being called and appointed by God. So if you look at your text in verse five, we see that Jesus did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but rather he was appointed by God the Father. Then, continuing down, if you look there in verse six, the author quotes two passages from the book of Psalms, one from chapter two and one from Psalm 110. And really, these are pretty brilliant citations for a couple of reasons. Not only do they perfectly support his point that Jesus was called and appointed, but also the Jewish readers knew that these passages referred to the Messiah. They knew that they referred to the anticipated king, priest, savior that was to come. 
Then if you continue down, the section closes in verse 9. I mean, I know that it closes with verse 10, but we're not talking about Melchizedek, so really the section closes with verse 9. And verse 9 says this, And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. So last time uh, when I was speaking, man, I know there's a lot of references to our last uh, chat. Again, I told you the author is just kind of expanding, building upon what he talked about last time. So last time we discussed how he was made perfect. How perfect refers to the fact that his job was complete, how he fulfilled his role, how he reached his end goal. And by doing so, here he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey. Not only did Jesus meet all of the qualifications of high priest, but he also fulfilled the main role? Okay, let's shift our focus because this is huge stuff. Jesus fulfilled the main role of the high priest. He served as a mediator between God and man, and he made the highest sacrifice, the highest sacrifice, the absolute highest sacrifice. His own death of, on the cross served as the highest sacrifice for all sins, for all people, including you, including me, for all time. Meaning, there would never be a need for another high priest or a sacrifice ever again. With me? Uh, looking back, now, being able to look back, it is absolutely wild how Jesus changed things forever, how he split time in half. Let me illustrate this for you because this is wild. Before Jesus, this highest sacrifice was necessary year after year after year after year. In between these highest sacrifices, which were made annually, there were thousands of other sacrifices that were necessary day after day after day after day. The process never ended. When Jesus died, God's ultimate plan came, uh, God's ultimate plan was unveiled, literally. He intentionally, this is God the Father, intentionally tore the veil in between that separated man from the holy of holies, that separated man from God's literal presence. He split that veil. He tore it in half intentionally in order to do away with the temporary separation that he had instituted. This was the fulfillment, the unveiling of his plan. It is one of the coolest symbols in all of scripture. If you think about the veil being torn in half, now we have access to God because of Jesus, the high priest's ultimate highest sacrifice. Amazing. After Jesus rose from the dead, he continues to be the high priest that we all desperately need. Whether you knew you needed one or not, he continues to be. Because the only access to God the Father is through Jesus, the perfect high priest, the perfect mediator between God and man. 
Not only is that a reason why when we pray, we close by saying in Jesus' name is because we are praying in the name of Jesus. He is the one that gives us access to the Father. And that is why he is the only source of eternal salvation for all. Again, that's why you've never needed during your lifetime. And that's why you will never need again an animal sacrifice to cover any of your sin. Last time I had mentioned that later in Hebrews we see an animal sacrifice isn't good anyways. But that's why. And it's a good thing because they are not happening anymore. Animal sacrifices are not happening anymore. Would you believe God ordained it that 40 years after Jesus' death and resurrection, his sacrificial death and resurrection as our high priest. Would you believe that God ordained it 40 years after that, Jerusalem and the temple were destroyed in the year AD 70. The temple, which is the only place that sacrifices could be made, it no longer existed, and so sacrifices stopped. Never to return again. Ever. Did you catch that? Shortly after Jesus' sacrificial death, there have been no sacrifices and therefore no need for a Jewish priesthood. That is insane. Do you think the Lord is trying to illustrate a point that Jesus is the last and perfect high priest? Let's pray. Dear Lord, um, God, just thank you so much. Um, thank you that you had a plan from the beginning. It's amazing to see how you set the stage and then how you execute just this beautiful, fully illustrative plan to the world. To see all the symbolism wrapped up in this first century context is mind-blowing when we start to unpack it. Lord, thank you for your plan of Jesus, for your provision of Jesus. Thank you for his role as high priest that he served as mediator. Not only that, he sacrificed himself as the highest perfect sacrifice for all time for me, for my junk. God, it is unbelievable. Lord, thank you so much for your word that it speaks to us, that it paints such a beautiful picture of the gospel. Lord, we love you. We pray this all in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. It's all.
Thank you again, worship team. Thank you again for joining us. I hope you have an amazing week. If there's anything that we can be praying for you for, if there's anything that you have questions about, please don't hesitate to uh, reach out and let me know. Do you take your shoes off or not? I'm interested. Have a fantastic week. We love you. See you soon.